Welcome to River's Edge Church Podcast. Each week we strive to bring you biblically accurate, exegetical preaching of God's Word so that you might belong, believe, and become like Christ. We hope that you will find this week's message beneficial in your walk with Christ. We are going to be in, as we get ready to start our sermon today, we've been starting a new series for those who have just joined us um, who haven't been here before. And our series was The Life and Death of Jesus Christ. Um, and I wanted to take the next 40 days, if you will, um, walking through some of the key aspects of Jesus' ministry, his life, his death and resurrection. Last week, we spent some time talking about the wilderness. And there was a couple of key things about this wilderness that we wanted to make sure that you know, everybody grabbed hold of. So the first is that we all need a wilderness. And I know that's a hard thing to grasp. But if you look at the great men in the Bible, and you look at our Savior, more importantly, even Jesus had to go through a wilderness. And we need this wilderness in our lives. There's too many Christians who, as soon as something goes bad, they want to turn from the faith. When life isn't working out the way we want, we want to run from it. The reality is that wilderness is there for a couple of reasons. One, you need that wilderness to learn how to experience God. We can get so busy doing God's work and not spending time with God. I'm, I, that is something I wrestle with regularly because it's a part of, it's, it's my nature to just be like, I'm an all-in kind of person. Like, it's all, I can't, I'm very one-track, so I just get wrapped in it. And I have to remind myself regularly, hey, like, this is great. Like, what you're doing for the church is awesome. Take a minute. Take a minute and, and spend some time in God's word for your own benefit. Spend some time in God's pr- in prayer for your own benefit because that's what we're called to. Secondly, Preparation for ministry, I tell that this is something you need to know. If you don't know it, you have been um, saved by Christ for ministry. Now, ministry isn't always this. Like, it's not always the guy on the stage. But all of us are ministers of the gospel. You are. You've been gifted that way. You need to hear that. You need to know the expectation of what you are. God didn't just save you for comfort. He saved you for ministry. Here's the thing. A lot of times, as we step into our faith and we begin really devoting ourselves to following Christ, we want to begin stepping into some places of leadership, of taking on more ministry, of, of pursuing passions God's already put inside of us. But here's the problem. Sometimes we ain't ready. Sometimes we're not prepared. In order to get there, God has to give us times and wildernesses so we can learn how to be prepared, how to lead people well, how to endure some type of affliction or obstacle so that we can minister to people better. Lastly, develop spiritual fruit. And one of these key fruits is discipline and self-control. So when we read through like what, the, what are the fruit of the spirits are, there's two that always jump out to me, and it's discipline and self-control. And these are the things that we're called to. These are the things that God desires in us. Because there are going to be so many opportunities for us to be tempted. And I'm going to tell you this. Satan has no interest in tempting you when you're feeling strong and vital. Like when, you, when you're surrounded by good people and life's going well, it's, it's not great. It's not his favorite time to tempt you. He's waiting till you're hungry before trying to convince you to make bread. He's waiting for you to feel alone before trying to convince you that God doesn't love you. That's what Satan's job is. That's what he's focused on. 
So as we transition into this week, this week, last week we were in Jesus was in the wilderness, this week Jesus on the mount. So what we're transitioning to is um, Jesus when he is <clears throat> giving the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be specifically in Matthew this week. Um, there are different versions of this sermon in your Bible, uh, but we're going to be in Matthew 5 for those who want to turn there and follow along in person. We will have it on the screen. Um, and <coughs> um, I want to show you this week, we're going to do a 35,000 view of this very long sermon. So this is a two and a half chapters worth of Jesus preaching. Uh, and it can be extensive, but this is what I want you to get. The Sermon on the Mount is one thing in particular, and it is the new covenant. That's what it is. It's the new covenant. Jesus is expressing the new covenant has come into place, not the old covenant. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to have um, Mark come down. He's going to read to us today's passage. We're going to be in Mark five, or Matthew 5, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 16. Here you go, brother. Yes. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you, and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they per persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. <clears throat> and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Let's pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, I just pray that as we're here today that you would prepare our hearts for the message that you have. God, allow me uh, to, be, to be poured out that your Holy Spirit would invite in me, Father, that you would guide my words. God, let me be faithful and true to the words that you've given us. God, let these words resonate in our hearts so as to change our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage, one of the questions that, I mean, makes sense to me anyhow, is why would we choose the Sermon on the Mount? There are a lot of things that Jesus did, um, and certainly some of them seem a little more important. Um, but why the Sermon on the Mount? Um, part of this is because our desire and, and our, our, our um, I guess, our highlighting of the Great Commission. For those who don't know that, that's Matthew 28, um, 19 through 20. And in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, one of the things that he says, and we often overlook it, is teach 
them everything I have commanded you. So Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, right? And he says, baptize them in the name of, the, of, the, of the, the, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. But then he says, teach them everything I've commanded. And a lot of times we, we, we get so interested in the going, and I come from one of the things, I, I came from Southeastern, which is a literally considered the missionary college for a lot of the Southern Baptists. And like they have, like they have a big sign that just says like go, and, and they're really into missions work. And I think sometimes there's nothing wrong with this, but it's like anything else. Anything we do to an extreme is not balanced. It's not held in tension. Jesus said, go <laughs> and make disciples. Both of these things are supposed to happen. Go maybe go next door, right? Um, go maybe down to the office that's uh, two doors down from you. Go may also be India. So it, go is different for all of us, but all of us are to make disciples. That part doesn't change. And the key part of making disciples is teaching them the things that Jesus commanded us. The Sermon on the Mount is the most definitive expression of all the things Jesus taught. It's the, it's the most concentrated version of all the things Jesus wanted and desired for our lives. So, as we look at today's stuff, uh, verses, and, and one of the things I want to point you to, so in verse 1, um, it's important to know who Jesus was talking to. <clears throat> it says, when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to, them, came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, I don't know about you, but growing up, anytime I heard a sermon and I heard about the Sermon on the Mount, I always imagined Jesus standing on a mountain and preaching to like this mass of people. Like That's how I thought the Sermon on the Mount was happening. I don't know why I thought that. It's just what was portrayed in my mind was this is Jesus teaching the multitudes. But if we read carefully here, we, we, we see this. He saw crowds and he went up to a mountain. Well, Jesus, anytime he went up to a mountain, he usually did it to escape, right? He usually was running away from the crowd. Now, we don't know necessarily that that's what's happening here because it doesn't definitively say it, but we do know this. He ran to a mountain, he sat down, and his disciples sat with him. And then he begins to teach. So it's important to know this is for his disciples. This passage is for the disciples. This is not Jesus trying to reach the lost. Okay, This is not like an evangelistic outreach. It's not a Billy Graham crusade. He wasn't trying to address unbelievers. He's surrounded by his most intimate people. People who have given up everything to walk with him. They live with him. They sleep on the ground with him. They eat, barely eat with him. They are his followers. Jesus is instructing them whom have pro begun proclaiming him as Lord. More importantly, these instructions that he's given us are for those who've actually experienced forgiveness. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. We have to keep that in the forefront of our mind as we go through this passage. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And this is why it doesn't make sense, because without Christ following these things, attempting to do these things is impossible. We're not capable of doing these things. It's too great a task to ask unbelievers to live out these teachings. Uh, in fact, um, one of the, the books I was studying, there's a, there's a, a well-known theologian, his name's Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, I said, and this is what he said. <clears throat> he actually goes as far as to call this thought process heretical. 
which kind of jumped off the page at me. Uh, he said, if we could live this way, we wouldn't even have a need for Jesus. If we could live out the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus, we wouldn't need him. So what is this way that Jesus is calling us to? As you look to the next section, this is actually known as the Beatitudes. I love it because it literally sounds like B and then your attitudes, right? Like it's, it's kind of broken up that way. I think it's hilarious. Jesus did not name it that, by the way. Um, someone else did who, wrote the, who edited the Bibles later. So that title is not, we call it that, but Jesus didn't go like, all right, these are the Beatitudes, boys, listen up. Um, that's not how it went down. But I do want you to know this. One thing that Jesus did was he's always, everything he did was so intentional. Jesus intentional with everything he did and everything he instructed his disciples. So even the order here is so vital. I don't want you to check these out, but we're going we're gonna to loop back around. But some of these, are, I mean, think about what some of these mean. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. I mean, that's a pretty intense list. But here's the one that I, we're going to kind of land on for a little bit today because I think it's the most important one because none of these other ones can be achieved. You can't achieve any of the rest of this life if you don't have the first one right. And it's also the one that's the most confusing. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I'm going to say this, if you are not poor in spirit, you cannot possess the rest of these attributes. Now, what does that mean? Well, part of being poor in spirit is proper perspective. It's a right understanding of your nothingness in the presence of the Almighty. Now, in our culture, that's a hard thing to grasp because we are told how special and wonderful we are. We're all like snowflakes and fingerprints. And don't get me wrong, this is not to devalue you. God loves you and thinks you're special. He does. But you need to recognize the only reason that you have any, anything is gifted because of the Lord. Any good you've ever done, any, anything you've ever possessed, any blessing you've ever received is because of God and God alone. One of the hardest things to grasp, we talk about, nothing we talked about this last week, but this is one of the most difficult things for us to grab hold of as believers, is that we are not good. We are not good. There's nothing good about us. If you read through your Bible and you study what God says from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's a consistent theme. We are wicked. We are evil in nature. Now, for some of us, that kind of might turn us off. I'm like, I don't know. That's kind of hard to grab hold of. Here, here's the understanding. Compared to God, you are not a good person. He is the standard. The standard is not the rapist that's gone to jail. The standard is not Adolf Hitler. It's not the nasty person that cut you off and gave you the finger this morning. That is not the standard. The standard is God. Now, in our evilness, we like to justify our own evilness. We like to compare. You're not the only one who's done this. It's, it's ingrained in us. I, I am guilty of this just like anybody else. I've gotten in arguments with my wife, and I am confident that I am right. I am confident that I have been a good and competent, loving husband. 
And then you talk to her and you're like, man, okay, maybe I'm not so confident now. You brought up some really valid points. And that's how we all are. And if we don't start there, we can't do the rest. Part of being poor in spirit is a complete absence of self-reliance in the face of salvation. That means that there's no checklist anymore. That means God's not, you're not going to get and sit on the throne of judgment and God's first question is going to be like, so um, it looks like you've missed 20 Sundays a year the last couple of years. Right? Like that's not how this is going to work out. And another word that another author uses, it's, it's not that you're worth less. It's that the only worth is not from you. All of your worth is in your Savior. All of your worth is from your Creator. That's one of the hardest things for any of us to grab. More importantly, it's the hardest thing for us to grab regularly. That, that continuous tension is one of the hardest things that I've seen Christians try to maintain. At some point, we all get broken to the point where it's easy to be poor in spirit. We're broken. God's, our sin is plain and evident. And God begins to change in our heart. And you know one of the first things that happens? We become self-righteous. Like, well, now I've got Jesus, and look how much better I'm doing. Look at that old dead person over there, and I'm not that guy anymore, so I'm better now. And i got to go do some good stuff because I'm a good dude. And we forget the reliance that now has to come from God regularly. We need to keep that in the forefront. As we look at the rest of these Beatitudes, these are the actions that Christ is calling us to. These are the, the, the places that we're supposed to live in. Number four says, for those who mourn. And the way that this is kind of described is, this isn't just those who are grieving, even though it does include that. But these are those who mourn for all people. Think about when Jesus mourned. He didn't just mourn for his friends. He would look at the crowds in Jerusalem and he would be like, they're like sheep without shepherds. My heart is broken. There's comfort coming. It says, blessed are the humble. I'm going to tell you now, if you're not poor in spirit, it's hard to be humble, isn't it? If you're, not, if you're, not, if you're self-reliant, it's awful hard to be humble. And I'm not going to lie to you, maybe it's a men thing. I feel like it might be. But for men, man, being humble is hard. Because the moment we kind of feel like we're humble, we start getting a little prideful about being humble. That's a slippery slope, isn't it? It's like, man, I'm pretty humble. You know? <laughs> pretty daggum humble. Verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Now, here's, here's this one right here. Man, this is one of those that I'm like, this is such a touchy one. Because it's not righteousness for other people. We want to go look at the outside world and go like, man, that outside world's turned into a mess. These people need Jesus. We need a revival. We need, we need Armageddon, and they need to be wiped out. Right? That's what we want. We're really good at demonizing and, and, and taking away people's humanity. What this is pointing to is I desire righteousness for myself. I want God to burn off all of the impurities. I want God to tear off all of the rough edges because I want to reflect him best. I want to be as close to God as I can be. I want to love like he loves. I want to be faithful the way he is faithful. That's a hunger 
a desire for righteousness. I love the word that he uses there too, the, the word hunger, because I don't know about you, but when I get hungry for something, I tend to get angry <laughs> because I'm not feeding myself, um, which clearly I must be a pretty happy person. Don't judge, okay? But there's a reality that it's a, it becomes a desire, right? Like it becomes, it becomes something that drives you. When you're hungry, that's kind of all you can think about. And all you can think about is, man, all the delicious things you could have. Those yummy snacks that are in the pantry, the, the delicious ice cream that's right down the road. Like it begins to invade all your thoughts to the point where you can't focus anymore. It hinders your ability to do other things well. That's the kind of desire God wants for us, for ourselves. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Ah, this is one of my favorites. It kind of goes along with grace. We are much more prone to give people mercy when we've received it. Here's the problem. All of us have received it, and sometimes we don't act like it. And God's calling us to be merciful, to be graceful, to give grace and mercy the way it was given to us. And that is one of the hardest things. It's hard because of our relationships with messy people, right? I don't always want to give mercy to people. When my sons act a fool, I want to distribute harsh judgment immediately and discipline. And I have to remind myself, oftentimes what they really need is mercy and grace. Wouldn't my neighbors run their mouth and act foolish? I want to distribute wrath and anger, and, and that's not what God called me to be. And I have to fight that. Because this, this says that this is how I'm supposed to be. Like if my life's been changed and I've been given mercy, then I should be giving it too. I can't just receive it. I have to be able to give it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Man, it's hard to keep your heart pure. Jesus would go on throughout this passage, and he would talk about some hard things. One of, the, one of the ones that used to convict me very much so is if you've ever lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Wrap your heads around the intensity of that. If you've ever hated your brother, you've committed murder. That's tough. God's calling us. He doesn't care about the action. He cares about the heart because the heart will always lead the action. The heart leads the action. So if I got hate in my heart, I may not murder that person, but man, it doesn't keep me from wanting to. But if I love that person, I can't murder them. If my heart is full of grace and mercy, I'm much more likely to give them grace and mercy. God's calling us to a pure heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're called to make peace. We live in a tumultuous world. We live in times that feel like it's chaotic and that the end is coming. I don't know if the end's coming. I'll be the first one to tell you. I don't know. I know we're one day closer than we were yesterday. That's about as good as it gets for me. I know this, though. I'm called to help bring redemption to my community, to my family, to the people around me, to as many people that I impact regularly. I'm to bring peace with me. Sometimes peacemaking is ugly because it's confrontation, right? No one likes confrontation, but confrontation is the only way you can get to the root of the problem sometimes. So it's not submitting all the time and just trying to make it smooth it over. That's not peacemaking. Peacemaking is an honest desire to correct wrongs, to bring about justice, and to provide people with peace. And the way you provide people with peace is through relationships and honest conversations. 
I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm a people pleaser. I love when people like me and when they think highly of me. And it is something I wrestle with a lot because a lot of my job is confrontational. I have to sit with people and sometimes I have to hold them accountable for things. But if I don't love them, I can't do that. And here's the thing, if I don't do that, they don't ever get peace because they never find their purpose. They never feel fulfilled. They never feel loved. And blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness. Now, no, 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 this is important because most of us will be like, well, we're all persecuted. We're Christians in America. And I'm like, brother, we have no idea what persecution is. Like, <laughs> there are people right now who can't, they sing worship songs in silence together. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're out here trying to blow people's eardrums, and they're doing it in a silent, dark room. We don't know what persecution is. But more importantly, persecution because of righteousness is important. Because we can be persecuted for a lot of other reasons. Some people look for persecution. They create their own persecution. Um, and what they've done is they've distorted God's word so that they feel like they're fulfilling part of the Bible. The reality is persecution for righteousness means you're living out the rest of these and people are against you. Not living and spewing hate and then receiving hate back. Jesus would finish this section by referring to the people as salt and light. And he used an illustration that they would understand, and the first is salt. And I think for us, in a world without refrigeration, salt was an invaluable resource in order to preserve food. Like None of us grew up, I don't think most of us have ever experienced what that kind of life is. I mean, I, my grandfather used to do some salting when he had pigs, but it was, I was so little I don't remember. But we don't live really in that world. It was also invaluable to making bland foods taste good and the unsavory edible. I don't know if you've ever had a piece of not quite spoiled but not quite fresh meat. But you put enough salt on it, you can eat it. I promise you that. If you cook it in bacon fat, you'll definitely do it. But why salt? Our presence should be different and set apart in the world. You don't put salt on top of things that are salty, Right? We're, we're supposed to be different. You add salt to things that need flavor. They need, they need to have something highlighted within them, and that's our presence. Our presence in the world should be like that. Our life should be bringing life to others. One of the things that salt did is it would, it would delay and even prevent putrefaction, right? The decay. And I think we all can recognize we live in a world of decay. All things are dying. Everything's crumbling. Everything's being torn down. But Christ died on the cross to redeem all of this. And he uses us. We're, <laughs> we're the mode of transportation for this. And so as salt, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bring life to places that are dead. And lastly, our presence should bring out the best of those around us. It should highlight those things. It should, we, we add flavor and heighten taste. We make people around us better because of who we are. Jesus also used the reference of light. And it's so important there because you've got to remember, in a world without electricity, light was invaluable. In a world of darkness that we live in today, our life should be a light that reflects God's light. And that's the key thing. It's not us. It's God through us. 
We're not capable. We're not, we're not light. We're, we're the best thing I've ever heard. It, we're a mirror, right? If you put a mirror in a dark room, guess what? It, it's just a dark mirror. It doesn't do anything. But if you shine a light on a mirror, what does it do? It reflects. And it lights up that room. And that's what we are. That's what we're called to be. We're the light. And the only reason we have light is because of the light that we've been given. <clears throat> so here are some key concepts. And this is a large passage. And I would encourage you to read it. The first part that we reviewed today is kind of like an overview. And the rest of it is like, well, these are how the behaviors come out. This is, these are specific situations that relate back to these things. But one, the first thing is that the new covenant is about our heart. It's not about our behavior. These aren't, uh, these aren't a checklist. These are, these are characteristics. These are attitudes of our, our heart that are deeply embedded. And it starts with the need of being repentant, right? If we look at the very first one we talked about, it talks about a need for repentance, a need in, to, to, of reliance on Christ. And it ends <clears throat> as salt and light of the world. The second thing is that the new covenant is not natural. These things aren't natural. I, I don't know too many kids who were born humble. Um, I don't know too many kids who were, who were born to hunger for righteousness. I don't know any child like that. I have yet. Um, I feel like my children were born from wrath. <laughs> and I think some of us can relate, so it sounds good. Our nature, <laughs> by nature, we strive against these things. We want to be self-reliant. We want to be confident in ourselves and in our abilities. We, we want to be prideful. We have hearts full of desires instead of purity. It's against us. And that, that unnatural nation, part of it is why we need new hearts. That's why we need to be born again. That's why that's so important. And lastly, the new covenant is not attainable. Now that one's, I'm just being honest, it's not attainable without the Holy Spirit. See what I did there? That was awesome. I had to pause, and then I answered it. Um, without the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of living this out unless the Holy Spirit's living in us. And here's the good thing. If the Holy Spirit's living in us, we're far more likely to want, to desire to live this out. And this should create a sense of relief for you because it's not about holding it together, clenching your teeth and trying to will yourself into humbleness and mercifulness. It's about letting go and being reliant on who God is, trusting that day by day he's chipping away at you and he's making you more grateful in order that you could live a life that reflects him. And it's just about submitting to who he is trusting that he is Lord. I'm going to have the worship team come up. And as they're coming, I wanted to share a story. And I've shared it maybe a few times, but I think it's important for today's purposes. Um, when we had had our first child and we found out we were having our second child, our daughter, um, who's not with us today. She's at home and recovering. <laughs> I may have just scared everybody there. I just realized that. She is with us on the earth in flesh She's just recovering from an illness. <laughs> but I remember a fear that I had not felt before leading up to her birth. And it was so unusual because I was so worried I wouldn't be able to love her. Because I looked at our son and I was like, man, I, I've never loved somebody so quickly and so fully 
and say, I love this child. How could I ever possibly love another being this well? And it was terrifying. And I was so overwhelmed by this. And I, and, and I remember, like, wondering, what, how, how am I going to do this? Like, I don't know. And I remember holding her. And I can tell you exactly the moment where I realized that it had happened. Because it, it wasn't this overwhelming nature. It was, she was three months old. She was in the car seat. And she had a little um, flower, like, band in her hair. And I remember looking at her going, I love you so much. And I realized what had happened. Is that at that before I had met her, I was not capable of loving her that much. But when she entered into my life, God grew my heart. It's funny he does the same thing with us. We may not be capable right now of all the things in that beatitude. But as we let God into our life, guess what happens? He expands, he gives us a new heart, and he grows it. And we grow into these things. It's not an overnight thing but we grow into it, and it's a wonderful thing. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, I thank you for all that you have done in my life. I, pray, I thank you for all the things you've done in these people's lives, and as we come together in prayer today, God, I pray that you would continue to grow our hearts. Stir in us, Father, a desire to be in your presence, Father. Make room in our lives for the Holy Spirit. Remind us regularly, Father, of how much we love you, but more importantly, Father, remind us how much you've loved us. Even when we were sinners, Father, you sent your son to die for us. God, I pray that all the grace and mercy and love we've experienced, God, we would begin pouring that out onto others. So God, give us grace abound. Give us mercy beyond our understanding. Give us love beyond our capability. And allow us to glorify you in all that we do as salt and, life of, as salt and light of the earth. Father, I thank you and pray in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We want to encourage you to like and follow so that we might reach others with God's good news. You can hear more messages like this at www.theriversedge.church. Have a blessed week.